Well, good morning. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Ronnie Higgins. I'm the executive pastor here. Uh, Dr. Sands is on vacation, so I get the joy of sharing the word with you. And uh, I don't know if he gets the same kind of encouragement that I do when I come up on stage, but as soon as the choir finished, I'm not going to name names, but Mike turned over and said, okay, Ronnie, don't mess this up. And <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, but yet this, this morning, I am excited to get to share uh, the message with you. Um, if you were here last week, you know that we had uh, our youth pastor. See, Art says he feels older than he actually is or whatever. I, I'm getting into that old, I'm not as young as I used to be either kind of moment. But if you were here last week, we honored our graduating seniors um, had them all come up on stage. And our youth pastor, Matt, uh, gave an incredible message about how we as a church get to turn and disciple and share and mentor our students. And one of the biggest things he said on there was that we as a church want to create disciples who are making disciples with our students. He went on to say, and I'm going to go ahead and read it just because I thought it was so good. He gave three things that, that make a disciple. And one is following Jesus, two is being changed by Jesus, and three is committing to the mission of Jesus. This morning, what I want to do is I want to build off of that message and continue our conversation on discipleship, because ultimately what he talked about was how do we invest into the students and that next generation? What I want to talk about is, are you still investing in your own discipleship? And so this morning, we're going to talk about what does it look like in the making of a disciple? And as I was thinking about the, the, the message this morning, one of the things that came to mind, I have two older brothers and cousins, and we used to gather at my grandparents' pool every summer, and we would play a game. It's a real complex game. It's called copycat. Ever heard of it? It's rough. It's hard to explain. You had one person who would get on the diving board and do a dive into the water. The next person had to copy what that dive was. And you just continued doing this until you messed up the dive and everybody said, you're out. And then you just kept going until everybody got out. And you had one last person standing. Well, it was all fun and it was great until one afternoon while we were playing this game, my brother, who's a year and a half older than me, gets up on the board. He's, he's going to do a backflip, which at this point in time in our lives, we could do these things. But the way he did the backflip is he wanted to get really good elevation. So he bounced and then like basically double bounced on the board to try and get more spring on the, on the, the backflip. The problem is when he bounced the first time, he moved out a little bit and missed the board for his second bounce with his feet. But caught it with his chin. Yeah, it wasn't great. And the worst part about it wasn't that he caught it with his chin. He kind of had the Michael Jordan complex. If you know what that means, he had his tongue out. And when he hit the board, he bit straight through his tongue. Now, most of you are sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, that had to bleed, that had to be bad. In my mind, what I'm thinking is, I ain't doing that, I'm out. I'm done. The reason I tell you that story is because I feel like in discipleship and becoming a disciple, it has some, some merit for us. Uh, 
as we think about what historically it meant to be a disciple, it was following. But there was a depth to it that I don't know that we, we fully grasp. One author tells us that if we look back in Jewish history, we would see that education wasn't seen as a luxury or even as an option, but education was the key to survival. And education was what discipleship was all about. So the rabbi, as the teacher, held one of the more powerful and respected positions in society. According to historians, the educational process began began around the age of six when the child entered into what is called Bet Sefer. This is the house of the book. Now, between ages six and ten, the the boys would go to this in in the Jewish culture, and they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy. I don't know about you, but we've been doing this memorizing a verse in a month. I struggle. But by 10 years old, they were expected to have memorized Genesis through Deuteronomy. And if they wanted to advance, because at 10 years old is when the first testing came, they would, they would sit before the rabbi and they would ask them to memorize to, to, um, share the things that they memorized. And, and in the end of it, if you were the best of the best in your class, you would get promoted into the next level. If not, you would go home and begin to learn the trade of your family, whether that's fishing or whatever. But if they went to the second level of education, that level was called Bet Talmud, and it's the house of learning they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament at this point, from age 10 to age 14. So they would, Genesis to Malachi. I would not make it out of Bet's affair. But these 14-year-olds, which would be 8th, ninth grade in, in, in our society, are memorizing the entirety of the Old Testament. And not only that, there's more. They would go beyond that because... The, the rabbis wanted them to, to memorize um, extra commentary in the oral traditions um, that were associated with the scriptures because the rabbis didn't have any interest in them being able to regurgitate and spit out information to them for information's sake. They wanted them to wrestle with it. They wanted them to learn it. They wanted them to own it. And so the rabbis would come back and, and around age 14 or 15, they would, they would have the next test. And in that test, if you were the best of the best of the best, you would then move on to what is called Bet Midrash. And this is called the house of study. And at this stage, the students would would apply to become the rabbi's Talmudim, which is disciple. And the goal of the disciple wasn't just to know what the rabbi knew. It was to become just like the rabbi. So the rabbi would ask them questions about Torah, about tradition, about other rabbis, about prophets, the sages, the oral law, questions about interpretation and legislation and words, phrases, and passages. And if the rabbi felt like the kid didn't have what it took, he'd send them home. That's 14, 15 years, or 14, 15 year old who's had to memorize all of this information, who spent every waking hour trying to learn it. Finally saying, not good enough, go home. But the ones who did 
get chosen to be the disciples. They would turn to them and say, come, follow me. Familiar words, right? And when they were told, come, follow me, the student would leave everything behind to follow. And they would went and followed their rabbi as closely as they could so that they could learn everything they could from him. And it was, it was a, a saying of they would walk so closely behind their, their rabbi that the dust from his feet would just cover them. And that's what they were trying to do was gain every ounce of learning they could from him so that they were covered with his dust. Now, I hope it's not lost on you when we look in Scripture, Jesus had disciples, right? Twelve to be exact. And of those twelve, I'm willing to bet not a one of them made it out of Bet's affair. Because one author puts it this way, they were the dropouts, the left-behinds, the not-good-enoughs. These were the guys who were well into learning the family business. Yet Jesus took these young men who didn't make the cut and changed the course of human history. Can I tell you, that's good news for us. That Jesus doesn't expect the perfection, the one who memorized it all, but what Jesus wants is those who are going to be dedicated to what he's calling them to go do. I think part of the problem is, is that for us, we get caught in this idea that Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaks of in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he describes cheap grace versus costly grace. And this is what he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Christ. Living and incarnate. In other words, cheap grace is easy. Cheap grace is something that doesn't cost you anything. And so you don't grow in it. But then he contrasts that with talking about costly grace. He says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Costly grace is a sanctuary of God. It has to be protected from the world and not thrown to the dogs. It is therefore the living word, the word of God, which he speaks as it pleases him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus it comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Hear that again. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a long quote. But there are a lot of good things in there. And I think for many of us, as we look at our story, as we look at our faith journey, our discipleship journey, too many of us find ourselves never getting past the cheap grace concept. Too many of us have, have made this, said this prayer, ask God to forgive our sins, 
asked him to change our lives. But then we never start down the road to truly becoming his Talmudim. And the reason we don't do that is it interferes with our pursuit, our pursuit of our passions, the things that we want to do. I'm going to talk about three different things with discipleship this morning. And I believe that all three of them can be, can, can, you can relate to all three, or it may be one or two, but I promise you, you're going to relate to one. Um, the first one is this. Discipleship is about self-denial, not self-preservation. In Luke chapter 9, I'm going to kind of summarize some things real quickly. In Luke chapter 9, you, you see Jesus uh, has just fed the 5,000, and he fed them with five loaves and two fish. They've seen this incredible miracle. People are starting to talk. And so Jesus, in his conversation with his disciples, he begins to turn to them. And, and we're, we're blessed to be able to hear the conversation. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who does the crowd, what are they, what are they saying about me? And of course, the disciples give their answers of, you know, you're Elijah, you're John the Baptist, you're one of the prophets. But then Jesus comes back and says, okay, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? There's a book called Deep Discipleship by J.T. English that our uh, discipleship team has gone through and been reading. Um, and, and he talks about this passage, and I want to share what, you, what he says. I have heard it preached dozens of times that the question, but who do you say that I am, is the most important question anyone will ever answer, and for good reason. The identity of Jesus stands at the center of the Christian faith. But I want to suggest that there is an equally important question. Jesus is not only interested in his disciples knowing who he is. Peter gets that part right. But they must also know what he came to do and what is going to be required for them to follow him. Jesus' identity can never be separated from our call to follow so as we think about Peter calling Jesus the Christ, he's given the right answer. But the motive behind his answer is what we need to understand. Because Peter's motive is self-preservation. What do I mean by that? Well, he has said, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Christ, which is great news for Peter. Because what Peter understands is that Jesus is the Christ means he's going to rule. Means that he's going to reign. Which means as one of his disciples, Peter is going to rule and reign beside him. The problem is, Peter's understanding of how Jesus is going to reign and rule is not what Jesus has in mind. And you see later on in the passage where Jesus has to confront Peter when he starts talking about his crucifixion. Because Peter has it totally backwards in what Jesus' rule is going to look like. Peter's idea is more about self-preservation, self-absorption, self-improvement. But what I want to do is I want us to look at, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple of verses, and here's where my old man glasses come into play. Verses 23 and 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have to put down all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your 
things that you have, your plans, your goals, your, your aspirations, you have to put those down and make sure that you're following after what Jesus is calling you to. Sometimes those things will collide. Sometimes they will match. Sometimes they will mesh. But first, you have to see where he's calling before you know where you're going to go. A lot of us have a hard time laying down our own kingdom mindset. A lot of us have that self-preservation in mind. And so we, we don't do the denial. We don't do the laying down of our life and picking up our cross. English went on to say this. When we start talking about discipleship as, as being true to ourselves and our, our self-preservation, he says, it is when churches begin to offer people what they want instead of what they need. It is when disciples have a greater and more exhaustive knowledge of their Enneagram number than the attributes of God. It is when disciples are more inclined to read generic spirituality books than the Gospels. It is when disciples don't have a firsthand knowledge of their sacred text or basic Christian beliefs, but have exhaustive knowledge of politics, sports, or entertainment. It is when disciples are more shaped by the practices and habits of digital secularism than basic spiritual disciplines. You see, as we go forward in this, part of our self-denial is learning how to do the second thing, which is, de uh, is developing holy habits. What does that mean? It's developing those spiritual disciplines uh, that English talks about. And if you think about it, most of you probably have heard the, the, the phrasing that it takes how many days to create a habit? 21. And it takes how long to break a habit? Seconds. Now, the, the saying's not accurate. It actually takes probably two months to a year to really truly build that habit, depending on the person and, and their, their bent. But the reality is, it is very hard to build the habit that lasts and very easy to break off from that habit. Uh, Blake Sherman uh, years ago gave me a book when I was studying for uh, a message at one point uh, called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. And it talks about the, the author, Justin uh, Whitmill Early. And he tells this story of being a, ch a missionary in China. He decides to return to the States and go back to school to become a lawyer. And he goes to Georgetown. And you can imagine the 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 requirements that he was having to do, the, the habits he was forming to be able to deal with all of the learning he was going through because he wanted to be top of his class. And he says this, only in retrospect did I realize that while the house of my life was decorated with Christian content, the architecture of my habits was just like everyone else's and that life had been working for me until it collapsed. My house of my life is decorated with Christian content, but the architecture of my habits was like everyone else's. See, he went into this panic attack. He had anxiety that just overwhelmed him. And from that, he started taking note of what he was doing and the habits that formed in his life. And he went on to say this, I now see that my body had finally become converted to the anxiety and busyness I worship through my habits and routines. All the years of a schedule built on going nonstop to try and earn my place in the world had finally rubbed off on my heart. My head said one thing, that God loves me no matter what I do, but my habit said another, that I'd better keep striving in order to stay loved. In the end, I started to believe my habits, 
mind, body, and soul. Some of you have created healthy habits. Some of you have spent time developing holy habits that have inspired you and carried you through dark times, through times of mediocrity, through times of laziness. Those those things kick in. And and another author talks about it this way, that that the habits, um, as we form habits, whether consciously or subconsciously, ultimately what happens is that when we go into autopilot, our brain kind of shuts off and we do what is the habit within us. So we don't even necessarily think all the way through decisions. I've seen this a couple times where I am driving home and I cannot remember a a, a part of the drive because I was in my head and not paying attention, but by habit, I know where I'm going. Anybody ever done that before? Spiritually, we do that sometimes. We shut down and we just live off the habits. We live off of what we've heard in a sermon. We live off of what we read years ago. We, re- we live off a podcast. It's not what I think God had in mind when he called us to follow. I actually think if we look into Philippians chapter four, we'll see a little bit of what he's talking about in developing these holy habits. Um, Paul does a great job of giving us um, giving us some things to think about. I'll put it that way. If you look at uh, Philippians chapter four, verses four through nine, this is what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand and do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So what are some of the habits that you need to intentionally create, that, that we need to create in our lives intentionally to help us not just talk about Jesus, but actually embrace and follow the way of Jesus. If you think about these scriptures, here's the things that he says, rejoice in the Lord. Are you finding your joy in him? Are you finding it elsewhere? Are you looking for it in other places? It also says, take your anxiety to God in prayer. Are we taking it to God? Are we taking it to our friends? Are we taking it to other people? Or do we really truly bring it to God in prayer? Guard your hearts and minds. What does that look like? That means maybe you go to scripture before you go to technology. How many times in a morning do you pick up your phone before you pick up your Bible? Have a spiritual conversation with your friend that's going to help keep you accountable, that's going to hold you to the right line that you need to stay in. Maybe you need to learn what it means to fast. Or we talked about, it, Art talked about it earlier, taking Sabbath, taking rest, pausing. Last thing he says in there is put, to pra- put into practice what you have read in Scripture. I want to remind you that last line of what J.T. English said, it is when disciples are more shaped by the practices and habits of digital secularism than basic spiritual disciplines. We need to be flipping that. And the third thing is this in discipleship. Discipleship is not found in isolation. 
You think about our society, you think about what we've just come through. So many people are still trying to get back into life and back into community and back into doing what they did before COVID hit. But the reality is, is we created some really bad habits during COVID. Our discipleship became digital more so than in person. Our time with people became awkward, became stretched, became something different. But that's not what that's not what God called us to as a church. We're not a digital community. Now, they can help in discipleship. There are things you can learn. There's videos you can watch. There's, there's sermons you can hear. But discipleship is an in-person kind of thing, a community kind of thing. Why do I say that? You know, with it being day of Pentecost, we have to jump into Acts chapter 2, right? So in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There are times when we need to be separated out. But no matter if you're here or if you're not able to be in the room, you can be with other believers in forming that community of faith. You know, in First Timothy, it talks about us being part of the family of God. What does the family of God mean? It means that we take care of each other. We spur each other on. We care about our spiritual formation, not just our own personal, but each other's. J.T. English says it this way, formation is meant to be personal, embodied, and incarnational. A blog, an online chat group, a video stream sermon may be able to aid discipleship, but they cannot form disciples the way the local church can. We are in danger of adopting primary pathways of discipleship that are digital and disembodied. And I thought this was an interesting comment. Pastors and ministers are called by God to shepherd the flock of God in front of them, not the one that's on Twitter, not the ones that follow them on social media. As the family of God, we've got to gather and not just gather with no purpose, gather to open the word, gather to break bread, gather for fellowship, gather for community that takes care of the needs of others. Here's the thing. If, if we do community where we are just learning, but we're not with other people, we're not doing the great commandment. And if we're gathering together, but not learning from the word, we're still not doing the great commandment. Because the great commandment in Matthew 22 says what? Love God. And love, you know the word, people. We can't love God and love people if we're in isolation. One of the things that our, our staff has been doing, our discipleship team has been doing, is over the last few years, I told you earlier, we've been kind of deconstructing and reconstructing, then deconstructing and reconstructing again. What does our discipleship look like at our church? And ultimately, we've kind of come back to this idea 
that, that what we want to see is we want to equip and empower the family of God that meets here at First Woodway. And in doing that, there's three things that we have to do. We think that a healthy disciple must be growing in the understanding of God's word. That means that you're getting into the Bible. You're getting content and context. The second thing is that it is founded distinctly on Christian theology. That means that we're understanding our core beliefs, that we are understanding apologetics, and we're understanding church history, and we're understanding all of those things that feed what we believe from Scripture. And the third thing is we're putting into practice the spiritual disciplines, our behaviors, the things that we do, the way that we say we follow God. Discipleship's messy. It's imperfect and it's honest. And it's going to take vulnerability. It's going to take commitment. And it's going to take a teachable spirit. But what I would love to encourage each of you with is that this is a place where you can come and be discipled, where you can learn what it means to live a life that picks up your cross daily to follow him. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we're going to encourage you along the way. Secondly, we're going to help you to understand what does it mean to get rid of the bad habits we've created so that we might have some healthy habits that we can create. And then third thing is we're going to be a community together. We're going to rejoice when we need to rejoice. We're going to, we're going to be sad together. We're going to mourn together. We're going to go through life with each other, encouraging each other along the way. This morning, you may have one of those three things that, that really is hitting you that you need to, to have prayer for. I'm gonna invite you to come either side to either one of the crosses. We'll have uh, prayer partners there that would love to pray with you about that. But my biggest encouragement to you is how are you continuing on your discipleship journey? What are you doing to not give in to the cheap grace, but really look at the costly grace and find it to be valuable. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. I thank you for the word that you have given us. I thank you for the examples that you've put in front of us. I thank you, Jesus, that you have continued to walk with us every step of the way. And this morning, Lord, as we acknowledge this road of discipleship. We know that we need you to be able to walk it. And so Lord, help us to understand that, to see that. Help us to follow you well. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.